Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Jeff Parrott, politics editor for the Salt Lake Tribune, Holly Richardson, editor of utahpolicy.com, and Taylor Morgan, partner with Morgan and May Public Affairs. We're so glad to have you here this week. We just finished an election cycle. We're getting all the results. They're starting to come in. We see how these candidates fared. I want to talk about some of the big winners in races that we were wondering if, be, if it would be as close as it actually was. And it was with, not that close, like within 20 points. So Jeff, let's just start with you for a second. Let's talk about that second congressional district. Celeste Malloy, as of right now, 57% of the vote, well over 20 points ahead of uh, Senator Reby. Uh, talk about that race a little bit, particularly in terms of what this signals for this next coming year with that big victory. I think that race was probably wrapped up shortly after primary election. Um, we saw, so there was po some polling right before the, uh, like kind of here in the final stretch, it put uh, that about a nine point race. That's not what we saw. We saw about a 25% uh, win for, or point win for Celeste, which is about what Chris Stewart had last year. Um, I I think we can also have a discussion or an argument here on um, whether the legislature has ensured uh, if that race is, or that district's pretty safe for a Republican. Yes, go, go ahead, Holly, talk about that, because that district after it was, re the lines were redrawn, yeah. is even safer than it was before. It's a safe district for Republicans, and I think you can expect that in 2024, that the, uh, like many of the races, by the time the primary is done, the election's mostly over. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, talk about the rural component, though. So it's, it's drawn in such a way that you have urban and you have rural. We talked about it. We even talked with you about this before the election came. How big uh, if, of an influence does rural Utah really have? Uh, is, that the, is that what really did it for her? Maybe it was a safe anyway, but how much did they show up to help pass the primary? I think it's still safe. I mean, I looked at numbers from Salt Lake County just recently, and she did not win in Salt Lake County, but that's also not unexpected, right? So you, you do have the rural component is important, and maybe it made several percentage points difference. Um, but some of those counties, when you have a very high turnout, it's still, you know, hundreds of votes, not even in the thousands. Yeah, go ahead, Taylor. Well, I think one of the things that was really interesting to me in the uh, second district special election is how rural voters, and when we say rural voters, we often conflate southwestern voters, St. George, Cedar City, that's becoming more urban, so they're not necessarily rural. But there has been a pent-up frustration among those voters over the last two decades with the way the districts have been drawn. And those southern Utah voters have felt that they, their voice has been outweighed by the Wasatch Front. And so I thought it was compelling how they came together uh, to really get behind one of their own in Celeste Malloy. She really leaned into, I think, that identity, too. Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right that those are becoming more and more urban areas. But I do think there is a, uh, some rural identity still there. And you saw those on the billboard yeah. sign she purchased after the primary. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Those voters. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And even some of her tours, right, her the campaign stops. And, right, mm -hmm. you're, I mean, you're in the rural dairies and you're out on the, the fields and you're dressed in jeans and flannel. And it's not just a photo op, yeah. right? She really cares. Yeah. yeah. But what's interesting about this conversation conversation, though, is uh, uh, Celeste enjoyed a couple of days having been sworn in, <laughs> yeah. and she already has a potential challenger from St. George. Taylor, yeah, that's talk about that. That's exactly right. Celeste Malloy came from being a staff member 
in former Congressman Chris Stewart's office. She had no name ID coming into this race. She had no money of her own. She was up against some really big names and big money at convention and in the primary. And she still won. And she won with a very smart, I think, retail uh, rural strategy. And she has her work cut out for her, but now she's the incumbent. And the incumbency brings a lot of benefits and powers, Frank Mel being one of them. And she's already off to a strong start. She knows she's up for re-election very soon. Yeah, this Frank Mel is opportunity for these members of Congress to send out materials, not campaign materials, but about what they're doing uh, there in office. Uh, uh, Jeff, as you are out there interviewing people, as you're following this closely, are we going to see many more candidates that you're hearing about that may jump into this race? I do think there are... Uh, there was probably a pretty strategic decision made here in this last couple of weeks to start jumping into that race yeah. uh, with these exploratory committees is yeah. what we're seeing before you can officially jump into the race. Um, it was a super crowded Republican field. Um, I, 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 I don't know. There's going to be a lot of different congressional opportunities <laughs> next year in the 2024 yeah. race that we didn't have in this special election this year. I want to so I, I do think the field might thin out a little bit. Yeah, January 2nd, of course, is the date when people will start being able to file. So we'll see how many people are lined up. Let's talk about another local race, uh, Holly, uh, this, this big race between Aaron Mendenhall and Rocky Anderson. And this is what we talked about across the state because our capital city had some things at stake and ended up not being very close at all. Yeah, not very close at all. I think Mayor Mendenhall showed, uh, in fact, one of the things that she said on election night was that she didn't feel like the voters really listened to the politics of fear, that they were forward-looking and optimistic, and that's why they backed her campaign. But, you know, she she pulled in, I, I thought it was really interesting at the end, she pulled in bipartisan support, right, by getting... Um, endorsements from Republicans, even though it's technically nonpartisan, right? But we know that Salt Lake City tends to lean um, a little more Democratic than Republican, maybe a lot more. But but she, she actually did really, really well. And, and I think the, maybe for me, one of the takeaways is she wasn't just a one issue person and she didn't come across as angry all the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think unfortunately, former Salt Lake City Mayor Rocky Anderson learned the hard way that in 2023, yard signs don't vote. Yeah. And he ran a campaign that was a copy of the last time he ran 20 years ago. And since that time, all of the modern tools and tactics for campaigns, he was genuinely shocked on election night, he just didn't run a modern campaign. Yeah, it was interesting. His comments seemed to suggest that what you're saying is exactly right. It was that this is not at all what I understood the voters were thinking. So we, we did hear that a bit as well. Can we talk about support in another category, which is so interesting, because we're trying to line up these candidates, who's going to support them, who might not. And it's important when someone says, I will not support you. I want to talk about some comments from, from uh, Senator Romney this week, which were very interesting, because he talked about, uh, to the question, who would you vote for? It sounds like a bunch of people, but two in particular he would not. I want to do this quote, Jeff, and then maybe uh, you can talk about this for just a moment uh, through this lens of your reporting. This is from Senator Romney in an interview with CBS News. He said, I'd be happy to support virtually any one of the Republicans, maybe not Vivek Ramaswamy, but the others that are running would be acceptable to me, and I'd be happy to vote for them. I'd be happy to vote for a number of the Democrats, too. It would be an upgrade, in my opinion, from Donald Trump and perhaps also from Joe Biden. Talk about that. 
I I don't think it was all that surprising that he is interested in finding what I assume is probably a more moderate centrist candidate, someone that probably reflects the same values that he has voted on and encouraged legislation on through all of his years in office. And so I, I no one's surprised that he's not going to support uh, Donald Trump. I think even there's Democrats that are wavering yeah. on a Joe Biden yeah. election this year or next year. Um, I am interested to see who he will uh, cast his ballot for in yeah. a few months, though, or at least who he'll endorse as the race gets a little closer in May and June. And well, he's he's already said, right, that if it's a Biden-Trump matchup, he's voting for Ann Romney. Yeah. Who his wife would get another vote. <laughs> another vote, another yeah. write-in vote. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's surprising, right? It's yeah. the it's the no, he's not running for political office, right? Because because he's you know torpedoing all the ships, but but he's out there saying what what lots of other people are saying too. We wish that there were other choices at the top of the ticket besides Trump and Biden, right? Yeah. So Taylor, we've even had our own governor in a recent house say, uh, we're just looking for two other people yes. <laughs> to be on that ballot. How, how, talk about how, that, how deep that runs. I think voters throughout the country are frustrated with having the same old choice again potentially between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And I think old might be the right literal. word here, yes, right? we're talking literal. <laughs> and we've heard this, even uh, Senator Romney said that he's looking for new leadership among the new generation. Uh, I really respect that, I think that's correct. Personally, I really like Nikki Haley, mm -hmm. and I understand why he's not doing it, but I wish, I wish Mitt Romney would come out and endorse someone specifically by name. The op-ed that he wrote in the Wall Street Journal, he called on Republicans who aren't viable to get out. We have seen some of that with Republicans dropping out. It is time for Republicans to coalesce behind one strong candidate, whether it's Ron DeSantis, who's less strong, or Nikki Haley, who is rising in all of the polls. Is well, the party in a place where they can coalesce, though? Is the Republican Party still factored so much? Uh, no, I'm, I'm just... Dreaming. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's pick up on the Nikki Haley uh, candidacy for just a moment. Uh, Holly, you did some great writing about this. So I'd love to hear some of the historical perspective. But she picked up a pretty big endorsement this week from, from the Coke Network. Yeah, she did. So Americans for Prosperity has been knocking doors for her and not there, they hadn't been specifically talking about her candidacy, but anybody but Trump. Um, and now they're specifically backing Nikki Haley. It's a big deal, right? It's a big deal in the state of Utah. Um, they do play in our political, local politics. So she's, she's done well, and she continues to do well. But here's the problem. Even though she's rising in the polls, she's still significantly below Donald Trump. So she can beat Biden. But can she beat Trump? That's the key question. Mm -hmm. uh, we had another interesting uh, visitor this week to the state of Utah, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, running as unaffiliated, uh, running as a third-party candidate, had a rally just this week. Jeff, let's talk about that a little bit. I know you've all done some reporting on that uh, with the Tribune. Uh, he, uh, he's received about $78,000 in donations, but all he needs to get on the ballot in Utah as an unaffiliated is a thousand signatures. And Brian Shaw went to that last night, heard the stump speech. Uh, there was certainly his brand of conspiracy theory peddling yeah. uh, during that stump speech. Brian also reported, and like when we talked about it last night, um, there was quite the army of, small army of signature gatherers there, yeah. which is exactly what you're talking about. If he only needs a K to get on the ballot, certainly you could see a world where he is on Utah's ballot. Well, 
Yeah, yeah. Let's not forget Kanye West was on the presidential ballot in Utah <laughs> sure in 2020. Yeah. So if Kanye can do it, then uh, certainly RFK Jr. should be able Third, to do it. Yeah. So, so talk about the calculus, and this is all by law in Utah. And we kind of looked this up. If you want to, if you're a qual uh, qualified political party for Senate, you need 28,000 signatures. Congress, a thousand. Utah Senate. It's 2,000, and the Utah House is, is 1,000. Holly, this is interesting. You know, if you are not affiliated with the party, the bar is pretty low to get on the ballot in Utah. Yeah, I that all goes back to SB 54 some years ago, right? I'm about sorry. <laughs> my apologies. <laughs> yeah, we'll still hear his part of it. About having an alternate path to the ballot, and I, and I think one of the things that has happened is that the the political parties have wanted to make it actually a little harder to get in that way, maybe a lot harder. It's hard to get that many signatures. It is, it takes either a lot of time, a lot of money, or both, right, to get yeah. that many. Speaking of time and money, I think we have to talk a little bit about our, our open Senate seat uh, with Senator Romney leaving, because Jeff, uh, we, we've been hearing from a lot of folks out there that even though he was out for a while, uh, John Curtis, Congressman John Curtis, in the very near future, may announce that he is indeed going to run for the Senate. Yeah, and I think um, Brad Wilson, who got into this race pretty early um, with that tactic of, you know, an exploratory committee, has been the front runner and has enjoyed that front runner position for the last several months. And I do think that changes if Curtis does jump into that race here soon. Uh -huh. uh, to that great point, Holly, uh, a lot of the big donors, the supporters in the state yeah. were kind of operating as if he wasn't going to run. And that calculation is really changing quickly. Yeah, sure. And what we've seen in previous races, right, Utah is friendly and we're nice to each other, generally speaking. Um, and they'll probably donate to John Curtis as well. I, I think one of the things that Brad may face is two things. One is the idea that Speaker of the House has broader name recognition than they actually do they yeah. think they have broader name recognition than they do but the second one is sometimes the front runner is the one that takes all the firepower and so he's been out there for a while but I think when John Curtis if he jumps in the race he's gonna immediately become the front runner because of his national standing yeah I think that's exactly right Holly I think that Brad Wilson in the latest polling he was at five percent ish mm -hmm. name ID is his issue as Speaker yeah. of the House he's well known among insiders but not the general public. John yeah. Curtis, however, having been in Congress for many years and having the benefit of that incumbent, incumbency and name ID, I would expect him to be pulling in the 30% range uh, as soon as he gets in this yeah. race. Talk about how this change is going to, this race is going to change the strategy because uh, some of these other candidates, and there are quite a few of them, Taylor, would fall pretty much to the, I would say, to the, the right of the political spectrum. Uh, where is the space for a John Curtis or a Brad Wilson? Well, I think we are seeing that when we get to a primary, a Republican primary among a broad swath of Republican voters, a more moderate Republican has a chance to win if it's a primary that involves all Republicans in the district. Going through the convention route is not necessarily John Curtis's best option. However, he did win at convention only last go around. He did not collect signatures mm -hmm. the last time he was reelected. Mm -hmm. But Holly, he said he's not gonna make that mistake again. Yeah, I'm sure that's that I that understand. is true. Um, I, I would say with John Curtis also, because of redistricting, and his district changed significantly um, in, with the 2020 redistricting, so the new district in 21. Um, and he now has the Uinta Basin. He's you know the climate guy, the conservative climate caucus guy. He's been able to win them over in Uinta Basin. Plus, he's had all the ones that are down um, underneath Utah County. And, and I think he is, he's already well known in many of yeah. the 
areas of the state, and I think he he has a lot of practice with dealing with maybe less favorable audiences and winning them over. And um, I think I, I think it does change the dynamic in the race for sure. Mm -hmm. And it changes the dynamic in the third congressional yeah. race as well. Yeah, I think I, we have to talk about that, right? So if yeah. John Curtis jumps in, Jeff, uh, this becomes a pretty interesting open position. Yes. Just yet again, another congressional seat open. Yeah, I, and I'll go back to what I said about the second district race, too. I do think because there are going to be four different congressional races and a pretty high-profile yeah. Senate race, it is going to thin the field a little bit as folks vie for where they think they are most mm -hmm. eligible or could be successful. Yeah, yeah. Any of you hearing any names right now? That yeah, sure. Are? I've heard Mike Kennedy yeah. might jump Senator in. Senator Mike Kennedy, yeah. state senator. Chris Herod, former, former representative in the House. He's run multiple times against John, but maybe without John, he could win. Um, Holly Richardson oh, would be good. wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> not part of the Amelia Powers Gardner, perhaps. Yeah, her, uh, yeah Adriel Herring, I think, yeah. would be a great choice. Yeah. Maybe Michelle Cafusi, I haven't heard her name, mm. but she would be, you know, I think a strong candidate if she were to get in. Yeah, it's so interesting to see how the dominoes fall and the, and the sure. board changes uh, in such a dramatic way. <laughs> but, but again here, all Republicans, right? We haven't mentioned Ben, we haven't mentioned so, some other, yeah, you know, Kale, others that could jump it, in that is race. That you're saying? But yeah, but I, but I just don't see that there's a viability there. Okay, great. Win. Who's going to be the sacrificial yeah. candidate from the Democratic side? Well, That's a lot of open races, though, so a lot of time uh, for us to see what will happen there. Uh, let, let's talk about ramifications of decisions for just a moment, because we've had a couple interesting developments in D.C. and here at home. I want to talk about fresh news just happening. Uh, uh, Jeff, uh, George Santos. Limit, uh, expelled from the House yeah. in Washington, D.C. Facing, uh, I think, multiple uh, felony charge for felony accusations, felony charges, uh, was just kicked out. Uh, Utah's four uh, Republican members of Congress, uh, and now Celeste Moy, you know? Mm -hmm, yeah. Maybe yeah, her voting. first vote, mm -hmm. I think, yeah? Yeah. Uh, her first vote was to actually re uh, recognize Israel. Um, so. sec sec maybe second. Maybe second, maybe second. yeah. yeah. <laughs> All voted to expel uh, the congressman from New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shocking. There, there are consequences in the U.S. House of Representatives for bad behavior. But I will just say, this is the third vote, right? So one of the things that happened in between the second and the third, the vote to expel, was um, the House Ethics Committee investigation concluded and they released the report. And it was very damning, um, multiple allegations of federal offenses. And I think that was the kicker, right? There were several who supported not expelling last time, just because he felt like they felt like he hadn't had due process, but now that that's happened, he's gone. And so the Republican majority now is down by one again. Uh, let's talk about what's happening in our, our local attorney general's race here because uh, lawsuits have been filed this week. Taylor, if you'll take a second on this. Uh, attorney General Sean Reyes, a lawsuit. And this saga continues with our legislature deciding to take some action as well. That's right. The legislature voted to conduct an audit. This is a uh, function of the uh, Legislative Auditor General's Office. It is not a political audit. This is purely a legal process audit that happens regularly. Uh, I, I think it's possible that uh, criminal charges could come. Uh, I would look for the civil lawsuit uh, that has been filed against Sean Reyes to also result in criminal charges and discovery. And look, we have had bad behavior in the office of Utah's Attorney General for the, the last three office holders. That office is in shambles. Something has to be done, 
And whether it's changing it to an appointed office, I don't know, Sean Reyes was also appointed under different circumstances. Uh, but certainly I think more and more will come out about Sean Reyes and it's only a matter of time uh, until he's criminally charged. Well, there's definitely some other candidates that are interested in that position. Derek Brown has already launched an exploratory committee, right, Jeff? And uh, and we have maybe even a legislator or two who may be interested in this seat. Well, before I think we jump into the other candidates, I, the most interesting thing that I saw from Brown was Gary Herbert, you know, kind yeah, of like yeah. heading up the committee. Who appointed who Sean Ray as 11 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, and we we do see other other folks that are looking at that particular race, and it's interesting to see if they will get legislation about whether or not at some point that becomes appointed or not. To Taylor's uh, good observation, uh, let's talk about the state of Utah for just a moment because some big things have happened this this last week. Some announcements in particular, and uh, and Taylor, talk about this first one because we're closely connected to it as well through the Hinckley Institute and the University of Utah. We are going to have a 2024 presidential debate. Yes, very exciting. It will be held right here at the University of Utah. Uh, the U has done a great job of pulling these off and really setting a standard for these debates. How many people will be on the stage, Jason, is the question <laughs> so, that we should be so asking. People are wondering. So, so those who are wondering, can there be more than two? The answer is yes. Can there, there can be. Less be. Than two? The answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We, we thought about how that might work if there's only one person, but that is that is an interesting point. Talk about the significance of that, kind of on the the Utah uh, presence on the national stage, Holly. Well, I think one of the things that we say in Utah a lot is that Utah punches above its weight. And we, we, we see that in some of the committee assignments that we have on the federal level, and we see that in some of the other things that are happening in Utah News. But, but the ability to host a presidential debate, I, I think is phenomenal, right? It's saying, look, we really are players, even though the state doesn't have as many voters as you know some counties, but <laughs> we're, um, we, we are a player and we're a factor, and I think that's great. Yeah, so, so Jeff, that's so interesting because um, not just that it's coming here for the, the second time. We had a vice presidential debate in 2020, which went, went, which went well, uh, the fly notwithstanding, uh, which, <laughs> which, which became that, that a- That debate <laughs> killed Mike Pence's presidential run yeah. in 2024, just in fairness, Jason. <laughs> that was the one? The fly, the fly on the head. Yeah. Did yeah. It. The, oh, so really, he's we're never gonna, recovered. We're to the, to the to the fly. I think you said something like he was one fly away from a perfect debate. Uh, but, but, talk, but talk about this debate uh, generally for Utah and the country, Jeff. I mean, what kind of impact can these have uh, on the country, particularly given the sort of the discussion we're having about who the candidates might be? I, I want to push back a little bit, Jason, because I, I want, I'd be interested in having a quick conversation on whether we think debates are worth it and whether it's worth it for candidates, whether it's worth it for voters. I do think there are great opportunities and we're all politicos and probably uh, debate junkies and love watching these things, but I'm not sure how much the average voter is keyed in. Um, but I, I know I'm pretty excited to have the debate here, <laughs> but I'd love to hear what you guys think. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Um, I, I don't I love debates. I love to yell at the TV when I watch them. But um, I think one of the things that it does is it allows sound bites for advertising yeah. for their opponents, usually sometimes <laughs> yeah. for themselves, right? Because nobody can give you a solid answer in 60 seconds, yeah. right? You can't have a deep policy discussion in 60 seconds. But I know people do watch and they make uh, choices on who they're going to vote for based on the debate. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Taylor, because particularly your point, sometimes you might, it might not throw you over the top, but it could sure bring you down. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty skeptical of debates, Jason, and I want to be careful because that skepticism is based on my experience as a campaign consultant. 
And typically, my advice to a candidate, if they're the incumbent or the front runner, you have no reason to do a debate. It can only hurt you. However, if I take that hat off, just as a citizen, I like debates, I like yeah. the engagement. Candidates should have to answer tough questions. We have seen how debates have helped Nikki Haley, for example, yeah. uh, rise in the polls and connect with voters. So there is some value, but also Donald Trump is winning by not by doing not. debates. You have to, you will, we'll watch that closely to see if, if he is the nominee, if he decides to participate. 100 plus million people uh, watching the screen sometimes yeah. is, a, is a nice stage. But really quickly before we close, uh, another big announcement for the state of Utah. So Jeff, the state of Utah, Salt Lake City has been selected as a preferred site for the 2034 Olympic Games. This is huge. That's great. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, I, I cover politics. I don't cover sports. Um, <laughs> I spent a lot of time this week uh, figuring out how to like make sure we're like spelling Olympians right, and they, <laughs> some of these smaller efforts as our polit politics reporters were covering that. Um, I think it'll be great for the state. I do think um, there is going to be a decade of kind of getting the state in shape. I know there's, at least here in Salt Lake City, there's going to be some efforts to turn some roads into some boulevards. Mm -hmm. um, I know the mayor has talked about a green loop, you know, we've talked about here in the city. Um, I wasn't here in 2002. I was living in Ohio at the time. Um, you guys might be able to better say kind of like what that lead up looked like before yeah. O2. Yeah, talk about it for a second, Holly. Yeah. It looked like construction on I-15. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of that. But what's interesting, talking about, you mentioned the mayor or the governor, we had all our elected officials. This seems to defy political party in terms of the support. I, I think one of the great things about the 2002 Olympics that I, I'm sure will translate to another Olympic Games is the number of volunteers that we can get from Utahns, right? Yeah. It's one of the things that, that really redefined how Olympic Games were run and then we can think Thank Mitt Romney for that, maybe. I don't know. But um, he, he can take the credit. But but we, we as a state already, are high in volunteerism. And, uh, and I'm seeing people already saying, I was just a baby. I can't yeah. wait to volunteer, right? Or, you know, in my case, I had really young kids and I didn't have the time, but I'm planning on volunteering, right? It's just, it's amazing. So I think we'll see a lot of that. Yeah. Look, we love the Olympics here in Utah. Yeah. We did it very well in 2002. I do not want to rain on that parade. But if you get into the details of 2002, the reality is, is that huge amounts of federal security dollars came in to subsidize our 2002 Olympics without the unprecedented amount of security-focused dollars, right, following 9-11. Uh, our games would not have been profitable mm -hmm. in 2002, hopefully we can figure out a way to get that money coming back. Yeah. Well, you're a downer. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> He'll still volunteer. Yes. That's gonna be our last comment today. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.